The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Episode number seven, The Wise-Ass Show. I'm Mike Wise. I'm going to read this quote to you. When I was a graduate assistant at Providence and he was the head coach at Seton Hall, he treated me so kindly and I have never forgotten that. That's Jeff Van Gundy on my guest, PJ Carlissimo, next on The Wise Ass Show. Take it away, Darlene. The Wise Ass Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Wise Ass Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And oh yeah, he wrote about the NBA for the New York Times, Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? The Wise Ass Show with me, Mike Wise, is one of three weekly shows from Pure Hoops Media. Our show drops every Monday with guests like PJ Carlissimo, Jeannie Buss, and other great basketball minds. We also have two other weekly podcasts. Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko comes your way each Wednesday, and their most recent guest was one of the great coaches in NBA history, George Carl. You should circle back and listen to that one. And then each Friday, we present the Pure Hoops podcast with three-time champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Our Pure Hoops family of shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Please download, subscribe, listen, rate, review, and enjoy. Welcome to the Wise Ass Show, episode number seven. I'm very honored to have PJ Carlissimo as my guest, uh, not just a, a colleague, but I would call him a, a friend in the business. Uh, somebody, when I see him, he always brightens up my day, whether he's busting my chops about something or giving me the scoop of what's going on in college basketball, which I often need to pay more attention to. As you know, PJ uh, still does ESPN radio games. Also works with Pac-12 Network and does uh, the NCAA tourney games for Westwood One Radio. Welcome to the program, sir. Michael, good to be with you. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I always say you're one of the few people that I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to age you or anything. But you're one <laughs> of these guys that, like, every time you see me, like, guys, some guys have different names for me. You always go, "Wise Michael." Wise Michael. It makes me feel like you're my dad or something, and I love it. It just makes me. It's a familiar thing, you know. Um, so what, so, so what the heck's going on? I know you're coaching the, uh, helping coach the national team right now with Jeff Van Gundy. Uh, I, give me your involvement in that. And what are you doing? No, I'm really doing, I'm, I'm really here doing media. Uh, other times I've been involved and helped with the select team and all that. I'm actually here doing media We're uh, we're actually doing the games for FIBA. They're streaming on ESPN plus, but the games are really being shown. You know, every time they have these, this is the World Championship qualifying team. It's our actually our last game tonight. Uh, USA is playing Argentina, and Jeff's teams have already qualified. He's just done an unbelievable job. Um, they've qualified. Uh, Greg Popovich is our real national team that will now um, be qualified and play in China uh, late August, early September in the World Championship. And tonight they're playing Argentina, the last game. And we're actually broadcasting the game tonight. So, okay, so I'm, I'm on so, easy street. I'm just sitting, watching, and talking. 
So, so my thing is, if we're um, if, if if the NBA season's going on, and obviously the Olympic team is made up of NBA players now, who's our best player on this team that's going to get us qualified? Well, I'll tell you, the guys that are, that are, are playing uh, really well, Travis Trice has played exact, uh, really well, Reggie Hearn, Xavier Munford. It's all G League guys. That's the thing that's been I love so it. amazing. There's been six windows, they call them, like these little uh, actually four-day periods. Like we played, we just finished playing uh, Panama on Friday, and we're playing, we happen to be home this, this window, uh, Argentina on this one. But there's been six of these windows, and Jeff has literally had – Six different teams. Um, Reggie Hearn, this is his fifth of the six. But uh, Travis Trice and Xavier Mumford have played in two. Uh, Cam Reynolds, one. No one else has played in more than one. They've used 61 different players. The the vast majority of them, I'm going to say 58 or 59 of the 61, were G League players. Uh, One of the windows back in September they were able to use Derek White and uh, Frank Mason in third, a number of NBA guys because we were out of season. But for the, the majority of the windows, it's been all G League players, and it's been almost a completely different roster each time. And the job that uh, Jeff has done, Jeff's obviously been the head coach in every one of these. Mo McCone was one of the assistants. Um, these last two windows, John Thompson in third. I think John's been in all five of them. Uh, John Thompson in third and Mark Fox. Uh, are the assistants here. Othella Harrington is the advanced scout. They've just done, an, honestly, an unbelievable job uh, getting getting us quality. It just means that, you know, when Pop reconvenes with the, the real national team uh, in August, the, the NBA players, they, they're already qualified. They go directly to China. There'll be 32 teams in China. 31 had to qualify in China as the host team. Uh, so, I mean, the job that the G League players and Jeff Van Gundy and Sean Ford from USA Basketball did is, uh, Mike, it's really, you know, everybody says, well, what, what do you mean? What's the big deal? It was easy. It was not easy to qualify. It was really an achievement. So, oh, um, especially with Jeff that, for the job he did. Yeah, especially with a, especially with a roster of guys that, you know, they're probably more honored almost than um than anybody to be representing the U.S. and it, it, you know some of them are just trying to get to the NBA or get back to the NBA. Oh, they're all trying to. They're, they're all trying yeah. to do that. But I mean, they did all the dirty work, and that's it. Obviously, none of them yeah. will be on the team going to China. None of them will probably ever get credit for what they did for this. But believe me, Pop's aware of it, and and the guys yeah. that are play, you know play on the big team know. Uh, there was a mini camp last summer. They invited three of these players, um, Reggie Hearn and, and uh, Xavier Mufford were two of them, um, to, to the mini camp. So uh, it, it's really it, it's, been, yeah. it's been a thankless job, but they did it very, very well. Uh, my guest is P.J. Carlissimo, the uh, former coach, like four NBA teams. You know him from Seton Hall. I just read, you know, obviously I was doing a little research before I spoke to you, even though I know you well. Um, you you were named Seton Hall's Coach of the Century. How do you how do you get that? I mean, well, come on, there was no company. It was Raph. Yeah. It was Raph and I. I mean, come on. Yeah, it was right. you know. Onions. They, they didn't want to vote for either one of us, but they had to vote for one. So it was uh, <laughs> it was it, it was nice. I mean, I, you know, obviously yeah. I enjoyed my uh, my time at the Hall. I, I still get back as much as I can see Kevin Willard and the job he's doing. But, uh, you know, it seems like a long time ago. It was eight, from uh, 82 to 94 uh, and uh, loved it. You know, that was my last uh, 12 years in college. I did 23 years uh, in college, the last 12 at Seton Hall, and, and really enjoyed it. So that's what's been good about this. I, I've been doing the NCAA tournament for Westwood uh, 
the last couple of years, but it's essentially I've been doing just MBA for ESPN, but getting involved with the Pac-12 network, and now ESPN's also given me a handful of college games. I've got uh, I did one earlier in the year. I did an Oregon, uh, I think UCLA game. I've got a uh, game coming up, uh, Gonzaga playing at Pacific. So I get a chance now to do about 20 games in a regular season for college, which helps me, obviously, because you get into the NCAA tournament. At least now I've got – I do at least a couple of teams that I will mm-hmm. see in the NCAA tournament. So uh, – and then when, when that's after the Final Four, I'll switch back and um, do, you know, do exclusively uh, NBA primarily for ESPN Radio. So I've enjoyed it, Mike. It's been great. It keeps me in it. And getting back and doing more college has also made it a lot more fun. It's the 30th anniversary of Seton Hall's run to the 1989 Final Four. And for you, PJ, it was the high point of your college coaching career. Memories of the team's run that really stand out to you. I, I, I look back on it and I think, you know, everybody remembers the ending and the and the crap foul, uh, Romeo Robinson by Joe Green. I remember you guys were down like 18 to Duke. In the in the uh, final four, and you come back and you blow them out. To me, that was incredible. It, it was a stra- It was really the only time uh, of the six games where the moment was big for us. I mean, it, we we truly were, and, and I didn't anticipate it because we had a veteran team. We had a lot of seniors. Uh, we added Andrew Gaze to the roster that year. So I mean, we had guys who you know had been in big situations before and obviously playing in the Big East. We came out of the Big East tournament. We didn't win it. I think we got beaten in semis by Syracuse. Beat us three. We had seven losses when the year was over. Three times to Syracuse, twice in the regular season and once in the tournament, Big East tournament. Lost twice to Pittsburgh and lost at Georgetown. We split with Georgetown. So we had six losses. The only non-Big East loss we had was the Mich- was Michigan in the championship game by a point in overtime. But the first half against Duke, was when we got behind. We were behind 26 to 8. And that, that was the only time where we kind of played like, whoa, this is a big deal, playing in the kingdom. I forget what it held at that time. It was probably 30 or 40,000. And we just dug a big hole. Plus, Dan, I mean, in fairness, Danny Ferry was playing out of his mind. He was the, the player of the year in college basketball. And he was – Dell Walker was doing a good job on him. It didn't matter. Everything Danny was shooting was going in. And – um, eventually we just warmed down. We were a lot deeper than Duke was, uh, that team. And Robert Bricky got hurt, and, and that was a factor in the game too. Robert Bricky got hurt. He drove baseline, and he got fouled by one of our guys, and he got kneed in the, in the side like a Charlie horse type deal and couldn't come back in. And the combination of, uh, I think, fatigue and, and us just being a lot deeper than they were, playing without Bricky, even by halftime. I think we still trailed at halftime, but by halftime we felt we were okay. We had turned it around. We might have trailed by a couple, but we, we were kind of in control of the game by then, and we came out in the second half and just played really, really well. And it was, uh, you know, it, it was funny because we did a, uh, you know, you do like, it's not really a highlight tape. It's a really a recruiting tape for the following year. So when you go in somebody's uh, living room or they visit on campus, you, you have like a little five-minute um, thing about the campus, but also about the previous year. And one of the clips we got was from that Duke game, and it was Brent Musburger. And uh, like late, in the, you know, like maybe two minutes to go. I mean, it was pretty clear we were going to win the game. And he's, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm pretty close. Brent said something like, "Does it sound strange to anybody else to say Seton Hall is going to play for the national championship on Monday night?" And we put it right in. That's the, uh, awesome. We, we put it in the clip because it was kind of. I mean, he said it, you know. 
uh, kind of wry humor, but it, it was true, and it was just uh, yeah. it was a great group. We played probably, our, but we were good, obviously. I mean, we we had started that year in the Great Alaska Shootout. Our first three games were, I probably have the order wrong, but it was Rick Majerus' Utah team, Roy Williams, Kansas, Eddie Sutton, Kentucky. And we won the uh, Great Alaska Jeez. Shootout, and then that's, we won. That's a that's a pretty impressive uh, well, run. I mean, we, you know, you kind of knew right off the bat, that, hey, they're pretty good. And then yeah. um, we we the Sugar Bowl that year. There used to be Sugar Bowl basketball tournament. We beat Virginia and DePaul. We had won one other tournament our own, and then you know we had a good year in the Big East. We did, you know, as I said, we lost three twice to Syracuse, twice to Pittsburgh, and once to Georgetown. So I guess we were eleven and five yeah. uh, in the league. I think we played only sixteen. Yeah, we had nine teams in the league, so we were eleven and five. And, you know, basketball people knew we were good. Obviously, we didn't beat that caliber of team. But when you get to the tournament, and we were in the West the entire time. When when the draw came out, our first two games were in Tucson. We played Southwest Missouri and Evansville. And then our next two in the West Regional, um, we beat uh, Indiana and UNLV. And at the time, it was the two worst losses either of them had ever had in the NCAA. They weren't kills, but, like, you know, it was maybe 10 or 12 points. I mean, we beat them both you know, final score fairly convincingly, like the most they had ever lost by. And it was kind of even the, the week leading into going into Seattle, everybody was like, no one knew where, you know, the big joke was where Seton Hall, like, and people were guessing states and people were saying Montana and North Dakota. Nobody had any idea, um, you know, kind of the average fan. But, you know, basketball coaches knew, and obviously people knew we were good and, um, but they, they didn't realize how we probably didn't realize how good we were until uh, those the three weeks of the uh, of the NCAA. And and frankly, Mike, you know, you covered it for so many years. The biggie, I always felt some of the other coaches in other leagues used to. They didn't say they wanted to lose, but it didn't bother them if they got beat. You know, and didn't have to play three games in in their respective conference tournaments. They thought that you know maybe it was too much or you, you got fatigued. I always thought the Big East tournament was the best. It was like starting the NCAA's a week early. It just it gave you like a couple more games, NCAA level competition and pressure, and obviously playing in Madison Square Garden with the sellout and everything, and you know being on C- in those days being on CBS. So it w- it was great. Those four weeks were probably the best basketball we played the entire year. Um, those those uh, eight games and uh, we we were just you know we were ready yep. we peaked at the right time and we were we, it wasn't like we were doing it with mirrors we were that yep. good and we were that deep we had uh, really played ten and eleven guys at a time so For, well um, f- well forget about let's let's forget about the beating UNLV and in Indiana for a minute you beat Bobby Knight and Jerry Tarkanian exactly. That's pretty so darn that, good. I mean, uh, I you know, and and you had to feel all of a sudden as a just as a coach that if you hadn't arrived, you certainly were on the doorstep. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, I mean, you know, but that's how good our guys were, honestly. Uh, you know, it's yeah. funny over the years we played Vegas twice. We split over the years. We split with them. We played Indiana twice. We split with them. They beat us in the finals of the um, the uh, preseason NIT when they had Calvert Cheney. We only played Duke twice. Uh, we were able to beat them in the Final Four. They beat us. It's funny. They beat us the game before the famous pass, the uh, Grand Hill to Christian Leitner in the Spectrum in Philly. Danny Hurley was starting for us, and Bobby was starting for Duke. And it was really uncomfortable <laughs> for both of them. But they beat us in the round of 16 in the East Regional. But it, it's funny how some of the guys – same thing with Arizona. We only played Arizona twice. Um, they beat us the first time we were in the NCAA, which was um, the year before that, 1988. 
Um, they beat us, and then uh, we beat them in the round of 16 in Seattle two years later. It's funny, all, all those coaches, the great coaches, and uh, our rivalry, we only played them all twice, and we split with uh, every one of them. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a good – how about, Mike, our first – 88 was the first time we'd received an NCAA bid. Seton Hall's first – as good as Seton Hall was back in the 50s, it was when the NIT was the king. And Richie Regan, Walter Dukes and that team – they won the NIT, and they were arguably the best team in the country, but they went to the NIT because in those no. days it might have been more prestigious. The first time we ever got to a tournament was 88, Mark Bryant's senior year, and obviously the bulk of the team that went to the Final Four the next year. But, yeah, but our first game in the NCAAs was in Pauley Pavilion. We drew West, West Coast again, Pauley Pavilion, and it was against Don Haskins. UTEP. Oh, that was our first game in the NCAA. Tremendous. We got to got to coach against Don Haskins yeah. and play in Pauley Pavilion. That's uh, that way, what a what a neat history. I'm going to wind this part of the interview up by asking you just I, all these years later, and you probably talked about it 83 times. I it bothers me just watching that game at home. As shoot, what was I 24, just out of school? But as it it bothers me watching at home. Um, the the play where you're, you're essentially you're up one and Ramil Robinson comes dribbling down the court. There's three seconds left. I can't remember Steve Fisher trying to call a timeout, but it's still the most controversial end of a you know of a game in Final Four history. And you know, like I, I just don't understand why Gerald Green is called for that blocking foul. It's the most bullshit call I ever remember at that level in that type of game. And I don't even think that call would have made been made in the first quarter. It was such a bullshit no, call. It was, How it do was where do you where, where do you feel where where do you well, come down it on was, it? It was it wasn't a good call. And and honestly, like I said it after the game, and everybody thought I was just you know blowing smoke or being chamber of commerce. Um, if I could have picked refs for the game, you're never going to get a bad crew in, in a Final Four championship game. Right. But it, we had Mickey Crowley, who worked our league, um, John Clockety, who made that call, who was primarily yeah. Southeastern Conference and ACC. I Tom hope he Hunter takes that to him with his. I hope he takes that to his grave, PJ. Well, and it was you know like I, I if I walked out and, and and we did, you didn't know who the refs were until you walked out in the court. Mm. But I mean, I look out and see those three guys, and I go, wow, you know, I mean, that this is what you should have in an NCAA championship. And it was one of those games, Mike, I swear. I mean, it was 45 minutes. It was a great game. And it felt like it was going to be a last possession game. But, you know, you just wish – the one thing that everybody forgets is, you know, they may say, well, if they didn't didn't call the foul, the game was over. Well, it wasn't over. I mean, I don't think Ramiro was going to shoot it. I think he was going to pass the ball to uh, probably to Lloyd Vaught. Lloyd Vaught was on his right side. And I think, you know, Ramiro's – coming across half court and kind of headed toward the top of the key and probably is going to end up throwing the ball to Loy Vaught and Loy Vaught's going to get a jump shot and not an easy shot, but you know, like a 17 footer or something like that. And that's going to decide it. He's going to make it or he's going to miss it. And that's how the game should have ended. You know, like the player made the shot or the player missed the shot and and that would have been it. But um, it's just, I I mean, you know, I feel badly for our guys because they did everything they could have done. And you just, you know, in that situation, um, you want the players to decide it. You know, yeah, I mean, everybody yeah. says it's no different. You got to call every, you know, the end of the game the same way you call the rest of the game. But I mean, come on, you don't, you know, you don't want to end it unless it's unless there's something there. Yeah, um, I'm talking to PJ Carlissimo, a guy that uh, I've known for a while. 
Um, just shoot, I guess through covering the NBA from the New York Times and then writing a column at the Washington Post, my time at ESPN. Last time I saw you was in the green room up in Bristol. Exactly. I'll tell you what, you've been, I mean, I feel like I, I know you um, because of you, you've been through, through, I mean, you're, you're one of these, where, uh, where's Waldo? Like you, you, you have a six <laughs> degrees of everything in basketball, everything. I mean, you just go through the, the times in so many ways. I look back and I think, Shoot, P.J. Colesimo is the same guy that uh, uh, was an assistant coach on the Dream Team. The gr- what people still say was the greatest uh, thing ever, you know, greatest team ever assembled. Um, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm still blown away. I would like to ask you, sir, uh, if, do you have any? I know that that was the greatest team that people say was ever assembled. Uh, you're you're only a year away or a couple of years away from coaching Seton Hall to the national title game, and you're you're on a court with Magic, Bird, Jordan, Stockton, Malone, Barkley. The you know prob- good ten of the ten of the probably you know thirty greatest players of all time. That must I mean I know you you got to coach them, but there's also a party that must have been, well, been wake up. I, I got to pinch myself. Pretty much every day, and, and that's exactly true. What was good, first of all, um, that group, it was the best team ever assembled, Mike. I mean, you know, you always everybody's entitled to their opinion, but, I mean, come on. Uh, there hadn't been a team ever assembled like that, uh, and I don't think there ever will be. Um, but what, what was interesting, what was good for me, was there was various – I was familiar with some guys, knew some guys very well. I mean, I, I, I knew Michael – Pat, Patrick, Patrick and Chris, obviously, from the Big East. Uh, I, I should put names, but Patrick Ewing and Chris Mullen, obviously, I knew extremely well from the Big East. I knew Michael very well from Nike, all the Nike trips together. We you know, played a lot of golf together, and some of them I knew very well. I didn't know Carl and John at all. I didn't know, know Birdie at all, Larry Bird. Um, I, I knew Clyde. You know, like, so maybe seven or eight of the guys I knew pretty well. One or two of the others, I, I kind of knew to say hello, and that was it. And three of them, I really didn't know at all. I didn't know Stock. I didn't know Carl Malone, and, and I didn't know Birdie. And so getting to know those guys, like that two months was, you know, you, you can't overstate what that was like. And, and there were segments. The, the first segment was when we met in uh, La Jolla. Uh, we practiced at UCSD, which ironically is where my wife Carolyn went to uh, college. But uh, we practiced it at UCSD. Everybody forgets. We had to qualify for the Olympics. We're talking uh, before about, uh, you know, the job that Jeff Van Gundy's team has done qualifying this group for the world championships. Well, we hadn't qualified. We'd lost in 88 in Seoul. In the Olymp- we didn't win the gold medal in Seoul. So we had to qualify for the Olympics in Barcelona. And our tournament to qualify was called the Tournament of the Americas, and it was held in Portland uh, in the old building, the old glass house, the Coliseum in Portland. So we went from San Diego or La Jolla to Portland. We won the tournament there. I think we played six games there against teams. I remember one of those games, but Bird just went off. It was like it was like this time warp when Bird <laughs> all of a sudden it was Larry Legend nineteen eighty six. And it was probably one of the probably the last time he was that great on a basketball Yeah, court. Well, it's funny because there's only twelve guys on the team and two of them really were not a hundred percent for most of the summer and that was Birdie with his back and John Stockton, John was coming back from an injury. I forget what injury it was, but um, a lot of times at practice, we only had 10 guys. Now it didn't matter in 
San Diego because we practiced against a college team. I mean, a college team. It was like Bobby Hurley, uh, Christian uh, Leitner, Weber. I mean, it was yeah. all it was all Americans. It was great, great players. Oh, well, wait, Allen. Christian Leitner was on your team. <laughs> Christian was on our team. I'm sorry. Uh, C. Webb, uh, Allen Houston, Penny Hardaway. Uh, I think so. I mean, it, great players. Roy Williams coached that team. So when we practiced in San Diego, we never went against each other. We didn't practice in Portland because we had something like six games in eight days. So all we had was shoot-arounds and we played the games. So the first time we really practiced against each other was in Monaco because we trained in Monte Carlo for a week before we went to Barcelona. That was the third segment of the summer. And when we practiced there – there was twelve. There was only twelve bodies, and a couple of the practices, uh, John and Larry couldn't practice. So it was five on five. That was all we had, and that was the first time they had really gone against each other. We never had to go against each other uh, in San Diego. So the best basketball, the best practices, and the, and the most competitive basketball of the entire summer were our practices in Monte Carlo, and that mm. was the, you know right before we went to Barcelona. And then of course, same thing in Barcelona. We didn't practice. We had game, a lot of games and. You know, we had shoot-arounds on the day off. That was it. So um, to, from a watch standpoint and a competitive standpoint, the, the, most, the best things to see, and there are, there, there's some tapes of them. I think Jack McCallum wrote a great book about it, actually, about the entire uh, summer. But, but he, he referenced those practices in Monte Carlo because that was the best basketball, watching those guys play there. And the, the other thing, because, you, you know, you asked me, Mike, what was the experience like? People forget – because we had lost in 88, because it was the first time that the professionals had played, and it wasn't just our professionals, it was you know all over the, the world. They had been using professionals the other countries, they just didn't call them professionals uh, prior to that. But it was interesting because you had guys like Michael and Chris and Patrick who had played in the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles, but the majority of the guys on the team had never been in the Olympics. So this was like, you know, an unbelievable thing for them to play in an Olympic Games. So they were really motivated. So you put that on top of the fact that it was the first time the pros had played. We had lost the previous Olympics in 88 in Seoul. So they came in kind of with, hey, we got something to prove here. And they didn't take, like, they didn't take any shortcuts. Like, yeah. I remember Chuck, the first meeting, Chuck Daly, the head coach, the, the first meeting, he told the guys, hey, you know, we know we're the best team. We know everybody expects us to win, but – Hey, guys, you know, we've got – and they did. They didn't shortcut anything. If you go back and watch any of the games, Mike, the thing that will impress you the most is the defense and the passing, like how unselfish they were. I mean, we overpassed. Oh, yeah. Oh. We overpassed. Oh, I mean, it was – yeah, it was – There were times it was, it was like it was, a pass that should have been a shot. And there were two more passes. Like they, should, it was like hockey. There should have been two or three assists. Yeah, it was. It was if. It was if. It was as if they all wanted to. Sh while you know, while other kids on the playground in America were showing off their dunk skills, it was as if they they wanted to show who could give up the rock the best and the most creatively. I mean, it was. This is how you play basketball. And if you go back and watch yeah. that team. And they had that attitude. And it didn't matter if we played a, a you know, team that we knew wasn't good or we played a good team. You know, we played Lithuania or somebody who was like, hey, you know, Yugoslavia, you got to be ready to play tonight. These guys are good. They played the exact same way every time. So that's why, you know, you see the level of the scores were, you know, remarkable. But if you watch the game, it wasn't any lollygag and it wasn't any showboat or anything like that. It was they came out and they defended and they passed the ball and they played so incredibly well. It was, I mean, really, it was beautiful to watch. It really was.
you, um, does Larry Legend know you call him Birdie? Everybody called him Birdie. Uh, really? Yeah, really. That was it's funny because um, <laughs> there were T-shirts made. It was you know it was funny to see the groups you know hang out together. Everybody's families were there, and you know through at least in Barcelona, if not the other two segments. But the two guys who hung out together a lot were Birdie and Patrick. It was really funny. We to the point where there, we had T-shirts made up. I still have it. It's like falling apart, but it was like. Um, Larry, they they had a nickname for Patrick, and I'm drawing a blank. But it oh, was, it was Harry and Larry. Larry, and Harry. Harry. They called Harry and uh, Harry, they called, right? I don't know why, but Pat, uh, Patrick's nickname was Harry. So the, the T-shirts were Larry and Harry. And it was like those two were inseparable. Like if you came down and breakfast, you know, guys would be different tables every day. The coaches would be at one. Those two were always together at a table. If we, we went out to dinner, it was those two. It was kind of like they were Mutt and Jeff the whole, uh, the whole, the whole summer. And it was Larry and Harry, Patrick and uh, Larry Bird. Yeah, you're dealing with real professionals there. And you, um, I'm talking to P.J. Carlissimo, person who uh, has an Olympic gold medal as an assistant coach. Do they give you guys a gold medal, by the way, or no, not? No, coaches don't get them. Uh, we got uh, beautiful rings from USA Basketball. But that's, you know, that's horrible. In any other sport. Mark Spitz gets a gold medal. His coach doesn't get it. So yeah, uh, but the yeah. athlete. Well, exactly. Team sports. Well, yeah, you could make a case team sports are a little bit different, but that's probably not fair to the – you know, the coaches, the coach, the, uh, well, the individual guys. Yeah, yeah. If they're going to do that, though, you know, like, like, why the heck do they give the guy in the in the equestrian the medal? I mean, the horse gets stiffed. That seems like it's <laughs> good, that's a good up. point. That's you a know, better argument for sure. I don't understand it at all. All right, um, but you do have three NBA championship rings with the San Antonio Spurs when you worked under Greg Popovich. I think when when people think about the Patriots, you have to look at the Spurs from shoot 99 to just before uh, Tim Duncan retired as one of the great, you know, longevity dynasties in, in professional sports and in a small market. If you had to go back to that time, what would you say? I'm not saying that was a different NBA, but you had guys that were clearly wanted to be there. There was no BS about I'm going to go here in free agency and get a super team together. Although there was a little scare when Duncan and, uh, and um, Tracy McGrady were thinking about Orlando. Orlando, but, exactly. But uh, but I look at it and I go nowadays like I'm I, I I'm just looking at some of the chem- chemistry things and I think like for instance the Celtics I think have been aff- affected by the Anthony Davis situation. Their, their team chemistry looks like shit. Maybe it's because guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown think they're gone after the season. And But I, I just think that you guys never had to deal with that. Do you do you even see that now and, and that there's a, there's a clear delineation between what that Spurs team and organization was like and all these other teams? Or, or, or am I just, you know, like one of these uh, in my day people? No, no, no. It was a different, it was a different time. It was a different era. I, I'll be honest with you, coaches still had to deal with it. You still had guys being traded or jumping around. You, you didn't have usually the best players. You had guys like Timmy stay with the team. Timmy and Manu stayed with the team the entire time. David Robinson um, stayed with the team the entire time. But coaches, I think, are used to guys being traded, guys – you know, elected when they're free agents to go somewhere else. Not to the extent that it's happening now. I'll tell you what's different for now, Mike, that that I I don't envy. Our GMs are front office people. Uh, Not that the job was ever easier, but, I mean, how you maneuver now 
with the salary cap, with agents, with free agency, and with guys just saying, I don't want to be here, trade me, or, you know, get me out of here. I mean, it's just, uh, it's incredible. Uh, th- that, to me, is what's different now. Like, it, to me, it's a bigger challenge for a front office, for a GM or a VP, whatever their title is, um, to manage and to, and to keep things going in the right direction now. Um, coaches... I hate to say it, coaches are just used to, hey, you know, a couple of weeks before training camp starts, tell me what my roster is, let's go. Pop has a great expression, what he, he always referred to as corporate knowledge and kind of uh, alludes to what you were talking about, the fact that we were able to keep our roster relatively intact. And that really is because David and Timmy. You know, I mean, yep. they had David Robinson and they had Tim Duncan, and there was a slew of other guys around them, a lot of them great players. I mean, going back to Avery Johnson and certainly, you know, Mono Ginobili and, and uh, Tony Parker for most of uh, TD's run uh, from, you know, from 03 on, the championships in 03, 05, and 07, and then what, the one they beat Milwaukee or Miami, I think was 14. But um, Pop always felt that I remember my first year there when I went there as an assistant after I'd been fired at Golden State and I was out for two years working uh, for NBC. And I went there as an assistant. Um, Hank Egan retired. And we're getting ready to start uh, training camp. And we didn't have, like, a lot of meetings or anything. And I'm going to uh, two of the assistants with me. Well, you're going to laugh. The three assistants with <laughs> me were Mike Budenholzer, obviously wow. coaching the Bucks. Um Mike uh, Mike Brown, who's assistant to Steve Kerr in uh, in Golden State, and Brett Brown is coaching the Sixers, and like they had all been there, some of them for a bunch of years, at at least Brett, one, you know, one year before me, and I'm going, hey guys, when are we going to meet? When are we going to talk about what we're doing? And they said, you know, don't worry, we'll, you know, we'll get to it. And like the first <laughs> practice, like we went out, and I'm like, I got no clue what we're going to do, or like you know what the drills are. And Pop would just go, you know, drill A. I mean, he would, and boom. Players would just go get in line, do the drill. They all knew it because there wow. were only like one or two new guys. And that was literally the corporate knowledge that he always talked about. I mean, the bulk of the team was back from year to year, and the other guys would come in and they'd just fit in. And um, it, it was there was, it was a, a, machine. a culture and there was a mentality. And they made mistakes sometimes. They'd get a guy and it really wasn't their type of guy. And he'd be gone in another year. They wouldn't embarrass him, but they, he'd just move on. But the yeah. guys were the, the expression they we we'd talk so much we'd be sitting in the um, theater um, like where we looked at film was also where we met and we'd be with R.C. Buford the GM or Sam Presti was the assistant and Rob Hannigan I mean Danny Ferry I mean a great Danny first was a player but then when they were player personnel people and one of the things they would always say we talk about you know can he shoot is he quick can he defend da 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 but then at the end they'd always say is he a spur can, can he be a spur. Can he come here and is he going to share the ball? Is he not going to have an attitude whether he plays or how many minutes he gets? And is he going to play defense? And will he accept coaching? If Pop decides to get on him someday, and and Pop gets a bad rap because people every once in a while see him going, he calls it being Serbian, when he goes nuts (laughs) and gets on a guy and they'll say, but that's that's not normal, Pop. That's occasional. But again, you better be ready for it when you're there and you better accept it. And that that's all part of being a spur, and that's what they did better than anybody. And they went and studied the Patriots. Patriots came and studied them because they both knew that, you know, they were two of, if not the two elite franchises in terms of, not just in terms of the product on the field or on the court, but just the way they ran the whole thing. And it, Pop and R.C. Buford um, 
as great a coach as Pop is and as great as the – and he always deflects it. He always goes, well, the reason we won was David and Timmy. And, and to an extent, he's right. It, it certainly started with them. But they just did such a good job, those two identifying players who could play the way they wanted them to play and, and would buy into that team culture. And, and that's why they were able to sustain it for so long. I mean, whatever, the numbers were absurd, like 20 straight 50-win yeah. seasons, 20 straight playoffs, whatever whatever those numbers were. That wasn't just a player or two because there was a lot of different rosters there. But yeah. for the most part, those rosters fit together really well, and that was R.C. Buford and Pop. Is it Are the Warriors the heir apparent to the Spurs? I mean, I almost feel like – irrespective of how you feel uh, the players are allowed to go off and, and, and do what they want. And I, I know back in the day, if, if a guy missed seven threes in a row, it didn't matter if he was Clay Thompson or Steph Curry, you sit him down. Nowadays, Steve Kirk tells him to keep shooting because yeah. of analytics. But, but do you, I feel like there's a almost like, hey, could he be a warrior? Could he be I, a warrior? I agree. I you agree. Know? I think Bob Myers and, and – uh... Steve and Steve took a lot, not just obviously from San Antonio, where he won two rings and where he played for Pop, where he learned an awful lot from Pop, but also from his time with uh, the Bulls and, and Mike. I mean, you talk about a pedigree, um, who he played for, um, you know, what he learned, and then uh, and then him schooling, you know, going to Phoenix and being a front office guy, broadcasting, uh, and and it's a funny thing about broadcasting, which I never appreciated till I did it. When I was in college, when we weren't good enough to go to the tournament or when we would get beat in the first round, I'd call up like, you know, a buddy. I'd go watch Roy Williams practice at Kansas or I'd go watch uh, Bob Knight practice in Indiana and say, hey, because you don't get a chance to do that, obviously, in the regular season, and you don't get a chance to do that with the people in your league. When I started working uh, after I got fired at Golden State, the thing about media, like when, when you're broadcasting games, you're, they allow you to come in to watch practices. They allow you to come in and watch shoot-arounds. So it's great to see how other people do it. It reinforces some of the things you do. You, learn, you pick up other things. But, I mean, it's a tremendous opportunity to learn from watching other people's practices and shoot-arounds, which you're allowed to do. Uh, when you're media, and of course you, you couldn't. I mean, years when I was out, I went to training camp one year with Jerry Sloan with Utah. I went to training camp another time with uh, Larry Brown when Larry was coaching uh, the Sixers. So uh, the opportunity to learn uh, and be in other people's practices or, or shootarounds was phenomenal. You were up in um, uh, you were up in Syracuse, weren't you, to see the Duke uh, Syracuse game? No, I was not. I, I've actually you got uh, Sir- I've got Syracuse. I've been, I was here. I was at the Argentina. I've got uh, Syracuse UVA in a couple of weeks, March okay. 4th, I think. Uh, it's a, a big Monday. I've got the game on radio. So I'll be up for the uh, Virginia at Syracuse game, but I was not so, at the Duke one the other night. So I'm thinking out loud. I I, I remember the reason I thought you might go is because I, I want to say you have pretty good relationships with Jim Beheim, Jim Beheim and Mike Krzyzewski. Two of my closest friends. Uh, two of your closest friends. Uh, yeah, and so first, first, just real quick, I mean, um, have you talked to Jim yep. about the tragedy and uh, and the, what happened, basically, where he, he he ran over someone? It was it was completely an accident. The person was out in the roadway, but nonetheless, you know, he, he took a life. It's a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, it's impacted him profoundly, no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no good side to it, but from from the standpoint of Jim. Um, 
the fact that, you know, there was no alcohol, drugs, anything like that. And it was just unfortunate. The car's in the middle of the road, and he goes to go to the left. And the, the gentleman, mm. you know, just stepped out in front of him. But, I mean, like uh, Jim's quotes after the game uh, yesterday, just, I mean, there's, I mean, I don't know how you deal with something like yeah. that. Uh, it, it's absolutely uh, incredible. But they've, the people at Syracuse, they've tried to, you know, they had the moment of silence, and they've tried to reach out to the family, obviously, and they're they're doing everything they can. But uh, nothing can change what happened, and it's just a, a, a horrific situation to deal with. Yeah, I, I can I can't even imagine. I really can't. the The other part I wanted to get to was Mike Shashevsky. Um I think you'll be good on this on several levels because you you have such a great college background, and yet you had four jobs in the NBA. Um, the, there has been so much made of uh, Zion Williamson's injury and, of course, his shoe uh, his shoe blowing up. I mean, every every slogan imaginable from, you know, just glue it um, <laughs> is the new one. Uh, uh, but I, I I wanted to ask you, uh, there's a lot of push. Uh, there's a lot of uh, pushback at Duke, at Nike, at sort of the NCAA, this whole notion of. These guys are, it's basically indentured servitude. I mean, and and look, I don't have a problem with Zion Williamson going to Duke. And I'm glad that people aren't saying, you know, hey, he's got the value of a Duke education. Well, no, he doesn't, unless he goes back there someday. He went there to become a professional basketball player and be marketed as such and have a better brand and play for one of the great coaches of all time. But let's be clear, you know, just like, you know, if I was going to be a NASA physicist, I try and get into MIT. He went to Duke to become a professional basketball player. Where do you stand on this whole thing? Where, where do we well, need? Well, things to... have changed. I mean, yeah. my answer is a little bit of a cop out um, because when I was in college, which was for 23 years up until '94, most players did come and stayed for four years, and I used to always resent, you know, when people would tell me, "Well, this is unfair. The schools are making so much money, and these kids aren't getting anything." And I'm going, "What are you talking about? They're not getting anything. They're getting like..." You know, at, at schools I was at, Wagner and Seton Hall, you know, a, a, about a $250,000 education in terms of room, board, tuition, and books for four years or, or five in a lot of cases, um, you know, however long it took to graduate. And I'd say, like, and, and the vast majority of college student-athletes, that's what they are because they're not going to go play in the NBA or even the NFL or Major League Baseball. They're playing, you know, for most of them, the last time they play their sport is when they're in college. So they are going to college, and, and they're competing there. And, and I always really resented people saying, like, you know, this is crazy. The, the football guys, you know, are making so much money for the school. Yeah, it's great, the money that comes from the NCAA tournament in basketball. And, you know, the, I, I guess, what is it, 100, I don't even know how many schools play football now, and it's changed a, a lot. There were some schools, and when I was in college, there were a lot of schools were losing money in football, but the ones that were making it, they weren't like, it wasn't like they were not doing anything with the money. The money was carrying the entire athletic department. Or in some cases, it wasn't even going just into athletics. It was going into the, uh, the general fund. So um, I never felt that you needed to play pay players. You know, people would say, well, they're not getting anything from it. I'm going, what are you talking about? They're, they're getting the value of a $250,000 education. How, now with the one and dones, with and again, it's still such a small segment of the college student athletes. There are so few 
college basketball players in Division One who are good enough to be a one-and-done, or I don't know what the numbers are in football. You know what I'm saying? Wait a minute. You don't know how many student-athletes there are representing these colleges. And yeah. so I, I'm, I'm really torn right now. I don't know what what's fair um give them a little more sure it was crazy when we got like they got used to get 15 dollars a month spending money or things like that there was rules where you couldn't work if you were on scholarship you couldn't work at the same time that, that that's crazy because th- th- that's not fair for you know across the board but paying them a lot of money because their schools are making money or because the you know th- this is crazy coaches are making a lot of money schools are making a lot of money and these kids aren't making anything wait a minute they do have the opportunity to get an education and they are preparing themselves in the best way possible to go on to that next level and play professionally. So, you know, I'm kind of, wait a minute here, you know, this argument is too one-sided that you got to just start whacking up all the money and give it, give it to the, to the people. Uh, You know, a lot of this money is going to the swimmers and the volleyball players and all the other you know, student athletes that are that are on scholarship and that are getting a chance to enjoy the college experience. So I think it's a. I mean, you talk about this podcast, Mike. It's like ten podcasts, and let's hear from everybody. Let's hear from you know one and dones. Let's hear from athletes yeah. playing the other sports. Let's hear from people who you know took their college experience and it really was a factor in what they did later on in life. Let's not just make it, you're depriving these yep. guys of a chance to make money because schools are making money off them. I, I think that's too simplistic. So, uh, PJ Carlissimo is my guest. I'm going to do lightning round real quick with him because I don't want to keep him too long here because I got to get to a f- few more things. Um, as you can see, he's uh, he's in favor of indentured servitude for <laughs> college students. And uh, <laughs> well, uh, I, no, but in all fairness, look, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. I, I think I got to know you actually a lot better um, during the Spreewell episode, Latrell Spreewell. Uh, I, I don't want to go in deeply into the thing because I, you've talked about it a lot. You can't change what happened. And, but I, I do want to ask you, you've had a hell of a life. You're almost 70 years old. You're probably one of the youngest uh, 70-year-olds I've ever met. You, you, got a, you got a young soul. And yet people, like, I, does it bother you that this is sort of a, you know, your obituary's written tomorrow and that gets in the second graph at the, le- at the, at the worst, probably maybe in the first graph yep. of the New York Times obituary, that, that it becomes such a big thing that your a player choked you for 10 to 15 seconds after practice, he lost it. He basically lost 68 games, a lot of money. The trail for whatever pe- people say about him, he's had problems on and off the court since. You've moved on. It, it just it bothers me knowing you that this is sort of such a big thing still. Well, it, because it was unprecedented. I mean, it just I don't think anything really like that had ever happened. It was obviously reported, you know, uh, it was a, an enormous story, and that, that's never going to change. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of people, um, again, a lot of non-basketball people, that's pretty much the only way they know me. If they hear the name, they go, yeah, isn't that the guy? Uh, yeah, I am the guy, So, and that's never going to change. So um, I, I can't can't do anything about it. The, you know, the guys that were on our team, the guys that were at the practice that day, you know, the guys that were with us, they understand you know, what happened, how it happened. Um, I never really understood it, to be honest with you. I mean, Latrell and I have spoken not not about that. You know, we, we've been in situations before. I've covered games um, that he played in, and it's, you know, it's not going to change. And exactly what so, you said is not going to change. That's always going to be 
first first paragraph, uh, or at worst, second paragraph. If, you, uh, don't give me an obituary yet, but if you if you talk about <laughs> me, um, but, but it's, it's going to be there for sure. Yeah, but did, real quick, did did, you, did he ever make amends in any way? Did he no, ever say? Did you no, ever talk we, ne- about we never it? we never talked about that. To be honest with you, uh, you know, it was just you know, good to see you, or good luck tonight, sure. or you know, how you doing, something like that. It was sure. never it was never more than a an, ex, an exchange, and frankly, cordial exchanges. Uh, no. But but no, never 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 any discussion uh, of the incident. I could talk to PJ Carlesimo an hour on each subject, but this one I'm going to have to break, uh, really get to quickly. I, you know, I, I, I never met your father, but he had a hell of a reputation. Uh, Pete Carlesimo, were you named at for him as a firstborn son? You know, I, I guess so. I mean, I'm Peter John. Hey, he was Peter Anthony. Yeah, one of ten kids, by the way. Exactly. Uh, they were running out, and they ran out of names later. But no, it, it it had to be after him. I think I was named him, and the John was after my grandfather, uh, my my mother's father. Um, okay. So that's where the Peter John came from. And so, so your father, um, as people forget a lot of times, beyond his coaching, athletic director, I I want to say I'm going to give you three things and tell me which ones are true or not. He played with Vince Lombardi on the Fordham football team, including True. the seven blocks of granite team. No, he wasn't on the seven blocks. Oh, he wasn't. Um, Vince is uh, maybe that. two years ahead of him, but he played with Vince. Vince was one of his good friends, was in his wedding, and he spoke at Vince's retirement dinner in uh, in Green Bay. Ah, great story. Uh, and he also was a guy that was – he was the first NIT real commissioner, president. Exe- yep, executive director of the NIT. Created first the, one. Uh, his idea to have the preseason NIT, which basically saved it because the the postseason NIT went from being, you know, a great, great event as the NCAA kept getting bigger and bigger. It kind of diminished the uh, postseason NIT. Yeah, and it was his idea to actually start putting – uh, early round games on campuses and then inviting the final four to the garden. And that, that to me, to this day, saved it. Well, it did. You're, and you're right. I mean, even when I was in high school, which is obviously ages ago, but it was still where the entire tournament was in New York. It had just gotten to the point where they couldn't sustain it anymore, bringing all the teams into New York. So the idea to expand the tournament and play the early rounds on campuses, um, you know, did save it. I mean, it was he and Jack Kaiser, Dan Quilty. Jack Kaiser was at St. John's. Dan Quilty was at NYU. Jack Powers was at uh, Manhattan. And Herb Sutter and Larry Jarashati were at Wagner. Those were the guys that made that decision. And it, it was his idea, but to, to move it to the campus sites. And also, when they created the preseason NIT, which became a huge event, um, and it, it obviously saved saved both events. And you never know if the internet's true, but I read that he was actually on the Johnny Carson show. Yeah, he was. That was when I was well, a freshman what? at Fordham. Uh, he was a great speaker. He's a great after-dinner speaker. Uh, oh, unbelievable. Okay. And Johnny had him on, and he was. He used to be able to tell in the old days whether Johnny liked somebody or not, because if he called you over to sit down, like he'd come out and he'd, he'd talk, and if he like asked you to stay, like he'd say, hey, can you stay another segment? That was like you know, kind of the highest compliment you could get from him. And he, he asked him to do that, which was a great thing. So uh, it was it was really a kick for us. That's so cool. He was on the eighth episode. I can't, if, if Ed McMahon was on that show, I don't know if you've seen it, but I could just see Ed McMahon, your dad's talking, going, oh, oh, oh Johnny. Well, Johnny was You know how John, Johnny was a great audience. And when yes. he liked somebody, it was real obvious. Like there were some guys that just, you know, got his tickle bone. And, he, <laughs> you know, he'd love them when they were on. And he'd be laughing there. 
and other times he wouldn't. It wasn't rude or anything like that, but it was real obvious when he, it, you know, somebody hit it off with him. And and fortunately for for my father, that's what happened that night. So it was really a, it was really a nice show. And PJ, uh, your father, everybody talks about him, even in Jersey. All my friends in Jersey, they're like. Pete Carlissimo was a hard ass. He was a, he was from the old school, and uh, but you know he loved you. But, but was he like that with you growing up? Or yes, was he? Was he no, 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 very much so. Was he that was hard? a football coach when we were younger. University yeah. of Scranton, where he coached, dropped dropped the sport eventually. But he was a football coach, and yeah, he was uh, direct, and we always knew where we stood. And if you got out of line. Um, you knew it, and it was dealt with uh, very, very quickly. Did he tell you that he loved you? Didn't have to. You always knew that. You always knew yeah. that. Maybe but more he never later. Told you it, it was good. I tell you, we loved it. Uh, we really yeah. did. But he never said it. But he never said that. Though. Did he ever he said it you? later? Didn't say okay. it when we were young. I don't remember saying it when we were young. Uh, yeah. But 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 uh, we do. Uh, he and my mother. I tell you what, we're struggling to raise two guys. My, my wife and I, it's great. We got two guys. They're wonderful. But we got our hands full. They had 10, and he he wasn't making very much money. How he did that with uh, with 10 kids, how he fed us and put us all through school, it was, it was amazing. But uh, he and my mother did it, so we were really lucky. Well, I hope he told you he was proud of you. Uh, oh, no. It was, that was the best thing, Mike, about – the success uh, that that our teams had, particularly you know at Wagner and 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 at Seton Hall and even in in the NBA, that he got a he died not long after our '03 championship. We had Father's Day in yep. Jersey when we beat Jersey in '03. Um, he died uh, like about a week or ten days later, so he got a chance to share pretty much everything uh, that, that we did. It was it was always great, and, and my mother even more so. She she lived until uh, 2013. So, um, you know, being able to share all all that uh, w- was fantastic with them. All right, last one. I, I And this is the only question I need. Did you, when you married Carolyn, outkick your coverage? By 50 or 60 yards. It would be like <laughs> kicking from one end zone to the other. Uh, she She's a superstar. She's obviously not very bright, but she's a superstar. But yeah, that was uh, oh, stop. that was the best thing that ever happened. I met her, and I just thought, man, she not only was she a star athlete, I think, um, growing up, but just had this sense of, uh, you know, like being where she was just light, like everything was light, and you were Mister Intensity, and I'm like, this is the great yin and yang of all time. Wow, she she keeps me in line. She keeps our kids in line, so it's great. All right. Well, this has been this has been incredible as usual, uh, and and it was really good catching up with you, PJ. I I hope to talk to you soon, and uh, shoot, good luck in everything. Thank you, Wise Michael. Good being with you, man. Appreciate it. All right, sir. Thank you. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you again, Darlene, and I appreciate all that you do here in the studio. My final thoughts. Look. PJ was great. Bruce Bernstein puts this together for us for Pure Hoops Media and I'd like to thank everyone else. Beware, I'm going to have a guest next week that's going to blow you away. See you later. The Wise Ass Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.